Hey, church, can we just give the Lord a hand real quick? Amen. So we are, we're grateful that you're with us today. We pray that uh, today is an encouragement uh, to you. Uh, we want to welcome you to our Wills Point campus. We also want to welcome those that are joining us uh, in Edgewood and online as well. Uh, we uh, pray that uh, the Lord would encourage us in our time together. If you don't mind, let me just pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for all that you've done in our lives. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your provision and your goodness. We thank you uh, for the call that you have on our lives. Uh, pray, Lord, that you uh, help us to live for you, to love you, to serve you, to be faithful to you, and help us to live in a way uh, that people see you in us. In Jesus' name, amen. I heard a quote uh, recently that said this, children rarely uh, listen to their elders uh, or, uh, and, and certainly never really obey them, but they always do what their elders do. So the idea is they rarely listen to what elders say, but they always imitate what their elders do. And so what you see uh, in your elders is usually what we'll end up doing. And so you want your children to be something then you've got to be what your children should be. So what your children see from you is ultimately what your children will be. Okay, so let's just think that real quickly. What your children see in you is what your children will ultimately be. And it doesn't matter how many times as a father we say, hey, do this. If we don't do it ourselves, then we're in for a challenge. Well, Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He begins with these words, therefore, imitate God. Uh, and so as we think about imitating God, we have to think about what it is that Paul is talking about. And over the course of the first five chapters of Ephesians, here's what Paul has done. He just laid out what it looks like to know and follow Jesus. And in chapter one of Ephesians, here's what it simply says, is that we have an inheritance from God, that we've been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, that we're His. The Ephesians 2, that it happens by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, that he took us, which we were once dead in our sins and our trespasses, and he made us alive in Christ. Chapter 3 says it's a mystery that God would do that, that God would take uh, us as Gentiles, formerly walking in disobedience, doing what was right in our own eyes, and that he would bestow upon us the gift of his salvation. And then in chapter 4, he goes, And now let me tell you, because of the theological richness of God's divinity and because of the way that he reached down to us, even in our sin and our shame and our darkness, he made us heirs of the kingdom, members of his body. He made us a priesthood of believers. And he says, now walk in that. Apply what it is that I have ultimately laid out in theological frameworks. So he goes, live it out. And in chapter 4, he goes, here's how you begin to live it out. And in verses 1 through 6, he goes, you begin living it out in the way that you deal with people. Unity. The way that you ultimately go to people. You work out things. You begin uh, to show people 
uh, the love of Jesus in your humility, in the way that you talk. And the framework of Ephesians chapter 4 just begins to show us who it is. As you wrap up chapter 4, Paul says, hey, there's a handful of things you ought to consider doing. One, you ought to think about putting away falsehood, lies, deception, deceit. You shouldn't live the way that oftentimes people used to live. You should speak the truth to your neighbor. Um, you should make sure that you're honest and upright and you have integrity. Um, beyond that, uh, he goes, you should make sure that you have a strict time limit on your anger. Hey, don't let the sun set in your foolishness. Deal with conflict. Do it well. It's kind of the Matthew 18 principle. Go to your neighbor uh, and, and, and ultimately go to your friend who's in sin. Seek repentance with them and for them and do it quickly. Do it earnestly. Do it with integrity. And then the idea of that is you begin to live out things. You, you, you and I aren't quenching the spirit, but we're putting away the falsities, the filthiness, the poor conduct, the poor speech. And we're beginning to live in the things of Christ, which is kindness. Um, it's tenderness, in a sense. It's forgiveness. It's the things that Christ has done for us. And so when Paul says these words, therefore be imitators of God, here's what he means, is exactly what he said. Live out what God has done for you. And what's interesting is that word uh, in Ephesians 5.1, that word imitators is this word in the Greek called mimites, which literally means in the English language to mimic. Matter of fact, we get another word from it. It's called mime. You know those creepy guys, you know? Uh, anybody else? Just raise your hand on both cameras if you like. They are creepy. You would identify with that. Um, they're so creepy to me. I think they're so weird. Uh, I'm like, you should really not just act like you're in a box. We should put them in a box and ship them somewhere else, is my thought. Um, like, but they're, what they're doing is, is they're acting things out without using words. What Paul is saying to this church in Ephesus, as they live in a pagan culture, in a uh, a licentious day, people using a license to sin, doing whatever is right in their own eyes. Paul is saying, listen, I need you to act as if you are God's son. I need you to act as if you're an heir to the king. I need you to act as if you are a son to your father. I need you to act as if you're a member of the body of Christ. And so he goes, imitate me, imitate God as a beloved. And then he says, child or children. So as beloved children, that word there, technon, which literally just means that you are his, like you are his son, uh, that even though you once were an alien or orphan or a stranger, that you're no longer that. Like you actually have a family. It's called the, the church, the people of God. You, you belong to a father who is good and he is righteous. And it doesn't matter what you had in your earthly father. Uh, you have a heavenly father who loves you, cares for you, has a plan for you, and wants you to leave the alien lifestyle, the things that you do on your own. And I'm not talking about a Martian, okay? There's some of you are like, oh, alien lifestyle. No, you should begin to be conformed to the patterns of God. That's what he's talking about. And so he says, you should walk in unity. You should, you should solve conflict. You should not stew and, and ultimately seethe in your anger. And seething is just, you just kind of grit your teeth and you just allow it to fester. He goes, that's not the conduct of a believer. If I can confess to you, that's probably my greatest weakness in this season of my life is a seething anger. I just let things sit too long and I should, I should work things out more quickly. He goes, that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be us. Um, we should be faithful husbands. We should love our wives well. Ephesians 5.22, in a few weeks, we're going to get to that. 
We should be wives of noble character. We should be a picture of the bride of Christ. We should live blameless and pure in front of our husbands. We should be, in a sense, helpers to them. Uh, It's the idea of being fathers that love our kids well. And loving our kids well is protecting them, it's caring for them, it's nurturing them, but it's also making sure that we don't use our words to sting them. I said in the first service that I, I think oftentimes, if as a father, one of the things that I can do um, for my son more than anything, if I'm, not, uh, if I'm not careful, is I can ultimately take out all their confidence just by the sting of my words. So I'm very careful that by God's grace, I've never called my son sissies because they're not sissies. And I don't, I don't like it when people identify them or call them girls because they're not girls. And the reason why is because I want to protect that. They are God's men that I am responsible for growing up. They're not women. They're not sissies. They are growing in. So I got to be careful as a father. Hey, son, I want you to imitate me. And so guess what? I, I want to live that out. I want to do it in my speech, in my conduct, not just out in the public, but even in my own home. Uh, we want to think through those things as um, speech and conduct. That's what Paul's saying. So, hey, be imitators of God as beloved children. And then he says, and walk in love. And that word love there is this word agape, which is at least brotherly love. It's the idea that you and I are brothers. And it's not a... Um, uh, it's not a phileo type of love, which you would think more intimately in terms of a marriage. It's a brother. Hey, we're a band of brothers, that there are sisters in here, that because of our relationship to Jesus Christ, you're my sister. So I should care for you, love you, nurture and protect you. FYI, just real helpful, and I'll say this real quickly. If you're in here and you're young and you're not married and you're dating, you ought to look as the guy who's courting you. If he doesn't care for you as a sister before he cares for you as his prized possession, then you've got the wrong guy. My biggest regret is that oftentimes in past dating relationships, I didn't edify a girl in a way that pleased the Lord because I didn't see her as my sister. There are things, guys, that we don't do with our sisters. And that's what he's saying. Hey, think about that. Walk in love. We are brothers. We are sisters. So we do that in affection. That's Christ has loved us. And he uses the word that's agapeo there, which literally means um, kind of a, in the sense that a, a welcomed fondness, that we're dearly loved. So what he's saying is, hey, because you're my son, because you're my daughter, you should love one another. You're in the family of God. And so, hey, make sure you treat one another with that type of respect. Care for another, one another well. And then he says, because... Of Christ, who loved us and then he gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The greatest quality about God we serve is that he gave himself up for us. Think about that for just a second. Uh, Every other God in the universe says that you should give yourself up for me. You should slice yourself, you should cut yourself, you should bleed for your God. But our God says, I bled, I sliced myself for you. Think about that for just a second. Every other God, every other religion says you must sacrifice yourself. Our God, the only God, says I sacrifice myself for you. He became the fragrant offering. And so because we live in him, we shall now be an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The idea is because of what he's done for us, because he loved us dearly, because he is well pleased with us, because he gave himself up 
For us, he goes, you should do the same. So we ought to be a fragrant aroma, a sweet smell, in a sense, incense before the God, for the God of the universe. Our lives ought not to be putrid or a stench. They shouldn't be trashed before the Lord. Ultimately, what we should do is seek to bring God our best. Our, get, our best in what? In all things. And he says here, we should be an offering and a sacrifice. An offering here, the word there is literally just to think of gift. Uh, in a sense, or um, something that comes before the altar. The difference between the word offering and sacrifice is an offering actually doesn't have to die and it doesn't require any cutting. But a sacrifice has to die and it involves cutting. So an offering is, hey, Lord, I want to bring my gift before you. Sacrifice is, I want to die to myself. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, Galatians 2.20. God, I am yours. So the idea is, as a pleasing aroma, we want to give God our offerings and we want to give him our lives. That's the picture. And so when you think about that, you go, well, what does it exactly mean? And here's what it is. Our bodies, our wills, our emotions, our future, our past, our plans, our portfolios, our marriages, our lifestyles, our speech, our conduct, our purity, all are God's as a fragrant aroma. As you look up that same word, that idea of an offering or a fragrant aroma to the Lord, uh, you will see it in a handful of other places. One of them is 2 Corinthians 2.15. Uh, it just says, hey, for we're a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The idea is the way we live our lives, both before those who know Jesus and those who don't know Jesus, is a fragrant offering. So he goes, what you do really matters. It's an offering, a fragrant aroma for the Lord. An interesting thing is in Philippians 4.18, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and he's speaking about the Macedonians who did not honor Paul and did not help him in any contribution financially or otherwise. And he writes to them, uh, the Philippians, in chapter 4, verse 18, "...but I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I have amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, and an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God." He goes, even in your gifts, your giving, everything is ultimately an opportunity to be a fragrant offering for the Lord. So think about that. Here's what God wants. He wants all of us. Because if he gave himself, he wants all of us. And he wants our minds, our wills, our emotions, our intellects. He wants all of us, including and not limited to our generosity. He wants everything that we have. He goes, that's what's pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And then he gives some warning. So as you think about an offering and a sacrifice to God, it includes us being a fragrant aroma, but it also seems to include that there are a handful of things that we ought to rid our lives of. And in verse 3, he begins that list. But sexual immorality, all impurity, or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Uh, the idea, he goes, hey, as a saint of God, that's a most holy thing. Now, oftentimes we don't think of ourselves as a most holy thing. When we look at ourselves, we see corruption and deceit. We see sin. And we oftentimes, we wonder how we could even measure up in the sight of God. And here's the good news. You don't. But God did for you. And because he sees God's imputed righteousness, he doesn't see you, but he sees Jesus in you. 
I, the best way I can help you wrap your minds around it, and this is a gift to you because I didn't even share this in the second service, is think through uh, the, the wilderness journey as they sojourn coming out of Egypt. God says, hey, you should take a lamb and you should take something and you should put it over the blood or, or the post of your doors. You should take a lamb and you, this blood and you should have the angel of death pass over you because I'm going to take Egypt's firstborn son and then I'm going to set you free. Here's the idea. He goes, listen, because you are my saint, because you are the son of the king, because you are a part of the family of God, he goes, you have been covered, passed over, and God has you. You're amply and fully supplied. And so now let's leave the things of our former lust, sexual immorality, impurity, and coveting. And so you think about those questions. You go, hey, what is it? Um, that I need to leave. And those are a handful of things. The, the list continues in verse 4. Hey, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude jo- uh, joking, which are all out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So it seems to be that there are a handful of things that in the conduct of a believer are out of place. What are they? It's sexual immorality. Uh, that word sexual immorality is the word in the Greek porneia, which is where we get pornography. So think illicit material. It is things that God says those should not be permitted. They don't honor and glorify the Lord. It's relationships that are impure. It's images that are impure. It's anything that puts God in a place um, where he is not supreme and ultimately the the pure one in our life. Um, It is impurity and the idea of a moral sense, anything that doesn't honor the Lord. It is coveting. It is things that we ultimately are striving for to feel our own egos and our own lives. It's filthiness. It's, it's the idea of obscene things. Um, kind of goes beyond uh, a little bit further, I guess, than you would say impurity. The impurity are, are things that need to be removed, but that idea there of filthiness is like just crude, nasty, vile things, the things we don't want to know. Foolish talk. Joking. Now, here's what's crazy. As you read this list, if you're a believer in Christ, you're not surprised by it. But if you're here and you're like in church, you, you go... I know, I've heard those rules. And matter of fact, many of us, the reason for so long we've struggled to identify with our father as a good father is we've seen him as what we think our earthly father was. And here's what our earthly fathers typically did. Is they, because they're trying to raise kids that are moral, they give us a list of rules that we should try to, to meet. And those list of rules ultimately bring some resentment in many of us. And so what we do is we run from the rules and we begin to ask questions. Well, how far can I push the limits and it still be okay? And so when we read through this list, it evokes some different emotions for some of us in this room. And for some of us in the room, as we read that list and we think about sexual immorality or we think about coveting or we think about filthiness or crude jokes and jesting, when we think about filthiness and all those things, we ask the question, God, why is it that you want to keep me from all the good stuff? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I would imagine there's been a point in our lives that most of us in this room and in the room in Edgewood, Texas right now joining us have asked similar questions. God, why is it that you're trying to suck all the joy and all the fun out of my life? You are a killjoy. And I want to explain it to you real quickly, so I encourage you to lean in with me. When God gave the law to the people of Israel, He gave a a list of rules for them to follow. And those rules also had some other things attached to them. And when you look at them at first, you look at them as rules like, why, God, like, must I do all these things? 
But then he, he kind of gives them more. He gives them ceremonial laws. He gives them civil laws like, hey, you shouldn't kill your neighbor. Um, hey, you shouldn't take all your neighbor's stuff. And you go, that's, that's morality. But then he says, hey, and you, you should probably wash your hands before you eat. That would be wise. Moms, you ever encourage your kids to wash their hands before they eat? Go ahead, raise your hand, okay? And some of you are like, no, I'm a bad mom. I don't care what they do, right? Uh, so, but then you, then you ask the question, okay, well, why is it that God said, hey, you shouldn't marry foreign women? And when you start looking at all the law and you understand it, what you need to know is this. The reason that God created boundaries is because he wanted to give them long, full life in the land. And in a culture where people didn't wash their hands before they ate, or they just kind of, um, in a sense, were uh, relationally with anybody, there was this thing that happened, and it was called disease. And as disease uh, infiltrates the camp, guess what? Long life doesn't happen. And when long life doesn't happen, then the people of God, who would be the people of Israel, the Jewish people, would, would ultimately not have the protection of God and the blessing of God because of their disobedience. And here's what God did. He basically is saying, in a world that's corrupt... I want to give you some order. I want, I want to help you to care for your neighbor as yourself. I want you to put me first, because if you put me first and you begin to follow my, my commands and my degrees, the, the decrees, then you're going to begin to realize that you're going to be a people who's clean. And that when you don't eat things that you shouldn't eat, guess what? You're going to live healthy. Because at the end of the day, bacon's not the most healthy thing, right? Agree? I mean, it tastes fantastic. And I'm so grateful that there's grace for that in the New Testament. <laughs> but you, when you begin to understand the context of it, it all has to do with health and ultimately longevity. That when you claim to know God and honor God, then he goes, I'll bless you. And he's not blessing them merely with health and giving them all the rule and the reign and kingdoms. He's basically saying, if you'll position yourself towards me, my way is better than your way. When you do what's right in your own eyes, when you eat whatever you want to eat, when you pursue every relationship you want to pursue, then he goes, what you're going to do is you're going to kill yourself way earlier than you needed to. But if you'll trust me, I'll give you long, good, fulfilling life. And it's your choice. You can follow my ways, which are so much higher and so much loftier than your ways or your thoughts. Or you can do what's right in your own eyes. Whatever you choose is up to you. And listen, this dilemma is not new to us. This dilemma started in Genesis 3. Let me walk you through it so you can understand it. The New Testament tells us that, that Eve was ultimately deceived. And she was deceived first. And listen, she was deceived first for a variety of reasons. Man abdicated his responsibility. I'm not sure that Adam really outlined the prohibition or the commands the way he should have, probably. I think mankind can own that. Uh, but here's the deal. She was deceived. And then there's this brief moment. I want you to just think about it in history for just a second. As, as Eve has just had her eyes opened to her foolishness. She now sees things she's never seen. And now she begins to realize that she is naked and she is ashamed. And she wants to do the most natural thing. And that's to isolate herself. To run and hide in her impurity. For the very first time, she's actually seen that her body was not clothed, and so she seeks to go clothe it. But I want you to put yourself real quickly in the dilemma of this guy named Adam. 
Adam, created in the image of God, now has a choice to make. Do I choose the one who supremely created me in his image? As Genesis 1.26 says, uh, let us make man in our own image. Do we do that? Or do I follow my one true love, the one who I've had intimacy with? The one that I think is my fulfillment and my, my joy and my satisfaction. We've processed through life. We've enjoyed fruit. We've named animals together. I mean, we're so many moments. And in that point right there, here's what Adam has to decide. Am I going to choose the God who created me? And am I going to do what he wants me to do? Or am I going to do what's right in my own eyes? And in that moment right there in the Garden of Eden, he has to choose the creator or the creation. And he chooses a woman. And ever since, men have had idolaters in the forms of women rather than God. I would say probably relationships are the number two proponent outside of money that vie for God's attention and affection in your life. There are many of us in this room that if you were to look back over the course of your past, there was not a season in your life where you didn't have relationships filling the void that God desired to fill. There are many women in here that you've been through multiple relationships because you're seeking a father and you're ultimately wanting someone to love you and you can't find it in a man and you can't find it in money, and you can't find it in a job. And here's what the Lord is using Paul to say to this pagan culture. You're not going to find it in immorality. You're not going to find it by making your own rules, by making your own lifestyle. You're not going to find it there. There are many men in this room that the immorality that takes place behind the scenes that people don't know about is us trying to fulfill some sort of masculinity that we didn't get in our own father. And that's why you don't call my boys sissies. And it's why you don't refer to them as girls. Because I don't need them trying to define masculinity for themselves when they're my age. Because if they do, they'll have marriages that are falling apart. And what they'll be ultimately doing is they will be chasing things that the Lord says we should rid ourselves of because they don't project holiness in our lives. Now, for many of you in this room, I could pray because you've got enough to think on already. But we should continue. And I want you to realize that we should continue realizing that that is true for many of us. Listen, the reason we have regeneration recovery ministry in half for the last five years at Stone Point is not because re regeneration itself heals somebody. Here's all regeneration does. It helps you realize that God has created boundaries for us to process through. And that when we begin to process through the things we decided to do in, right in our own eyes, that it brought lots of pain. And when we begin to process through the pain of our past, whether it was stuff we did or things that people did to us, we begin to have to realize that we have filled our pain with so many other things that didn't honor the Lord. What? Impurity, sexually and otherwise. Substance, substances. We have run to filthiness. For many of us, it's just crude humor. It's a defense mechanism. If I can get the, if I can get the attention off of me and put it on you, then you're the one who looks like a fool. And it's a defense mechanism. It's not masculinity. 
And it's one of the things I struggle with the most. If I can get the attention off of me and on to somebody else, and if I can make fun of you or make light of you, and listen, it's where I'm a fool in my life. But it's things I'm wrestling through that the Lord goes, that doesn't honor me, Brandon. That does, that's not, that's not your father in you. And as you think about your children and you see you or a father, a mother in your children, you got to ask the question, is that really my son? And when I look at my kids, I cannot disown them because they are me in multiple ways. And we have to process through that. My oldest, he looks like me. Um, he acts like me. He has manners like me. He talks like me. He's got this Texas slang just like me. He is me in many, many ways. And then you look at my other two. They're a little younger. They, they kind of have a little bit more physically of some of the traits of their mother. But listen, when you begin to watch them in a tantrum, they remind, they remind myself a lot of me. The foolish things they do. And here's the deal. You go, well, where did they learn that? Listen, they don't learn those things through, my, through ultimately what I've instructed them to do. They've learned those things as they've imitated us as parents deal with things. We're passing something down. And the Lord goes, listen, be careful what you pass down. Don't pass down all of the things listed in verse 3, 4. Sexual immorality, impurity, coveting. Those aren't proper among the saints. Hey, get rid of filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Those are all out of place. But hey, instead, be thankful to the Lord. Listen, when we gather our children at night, we ought to spend some time just praying with them, being thankful to the Lord. What are we thankful for? Listen, your kids don't understand thankfulness to the Lord unless you practice thankfulness to the Lord. And then in verse 5, For many of you are sure of this, that everyone who is among you, sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater. They have no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. Now listen, there are many of us in this room that we're like, oh my gosh, you've already hammered me. Like I, I am all those things and more that you just talked about. And now Paul says, I have no inheritance of the kingdom of God. Let's process through that real quickly. What does he mean? And here's what he means. He says continually, as you and I live out under the banner of our heavenly father, we ought to look more like our father. Just as my children look like me, we ought to look like the one who created us in his image. And, and by his grace, through his salvation, he is making things that went wrong in the Garden of Eden. He's trying to make those things right. As those things get made right, we should be conformed to the patterns and the wills and the way, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, physically. And as that happens, we look like him. The challenge, though, is he goes, but there are many who we claim to be of our Heavenly Father, but their wills, their actions, their emotions, and all those things haven't been conformed. The best way I can explain is this. I have, I have four peach trees on our property. Um, and so um, I bought those. And uh, the question that you have to wrestle with real quickly is, how long should I have a peach tree in my property before it bears fruit? Now, when you start thinking about that, you may go, well, I guess it could be a year, or it could be three years, or it could be five years. And listen, if you're like me, I promise you that you slow the growth down of anything. And here's why, because I don't water enough, I don't fertilize enough, I don't tend to them or care for them enough or, or mulch them enough. Like I could do a lot of improving on how I help supplement my trees. Anybody in here like I could do that too? Yeah, you understand? Like everything that you plant is dying. And listen, you're like, I don't have a green thumb. No, you just didn't water it doesn't take rocket science to keep things alive, but you have to water them and nurture them and care for them. So my peach trees are all alive, but I'm sure they could be healthier. But here's what I need you to know. 
Every one of my peach trees has bared fruit with the first season, even though I didn't care for them well. And here's why. Because they're peach trees. And peach trees will bear fruit. But let's just hypothetically say I have one of those four that has not bared any fruit yet. The question you have to ask yourself is, is it a peach tree or did Walmart actually label it wrong? And that happens, by the way. And that happens even within the local expression of the faith. There are many people, because they grew up in church, or they have the rules of church, or they have the morality of church, that at the end of the day, they go through many years of their life, and they say the right things, they try to do the right things, but at the end of the day, you look at their lives, and they're empty, and they're, not, and they're void. And you ought to ask the question, why? And here it is, it's because they don't bear fruit. Why not? Because they're not fruit trees. Many Christians can't possess or bear the fruit of Christ because they don't know Christ. And if you do know Christ, guess what? You will bear much fruit. You may have some difficult seasons. Many times it may be a little bit more bare than others. I've had those seasons. But at the end of the day, even a rough season where there's not enough cultivating, you're still going to bear some fruit. And so we should bear fruit. And so let no one deceive you. Verse 6, that with empty words, because of these things, the wrath of God comes from the sons of disobedience. At the end of the day, what he's saying is he goes, hey, don't let anybody cheat you or in a sense beguile you. Don't let them fool you with empty, deceitful words. Like, hey, don't let they, uh, in a sense, convince you of things that don't honor the Lord. Because at the end of the day, he goes, you're going to receive God's wrath. Like, you need to know what the Lord says. And the reason you're going to do that is because the sons of disobedience, they want to ensnare you, they want to trap you, and they want to lead you astray. Why? Because that's what the enemy has done for a very long time. John chapter 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But God comes that he would give the believer full and abundant life. The idea of that is this. The enemy wants you to be isolated, to be deceived, and to be tricked. He is cunning. He is crafty. At the end of the day, you go, well, how do I prepare for it? And here's the deal. He goes, you prepare for it by being sober-minded. Be watchful. That's what Peter says. Because you ought to be alert. you got to have your head on a swivel. Why? Because the enemy, he's prowling around like a roaring lion. He's looking for someone to devour. And some of us, if I'm just honest, are a lot, much, a lot easier to devour than others. There are many of us that we just continue to walk around in our feebleness and our weak-mindedness and with our lack of discipline. And we oftentimes wonder why we're devoured. And then we'll say something like this, the, the devil just won't get off of me. Listen, the devil is finite, the devil is not omnipotent, he's not all-powerful, and he's not omnipresent. He is a created being that has been deceived much like mankind was. He does have power, and God has given him some authority for a season of time. But there is one who is chiefly supreme and has all authority. Everything is subject under his feet. His name is Jesus. He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Listen, I think oftentimes we're being deceived by crafty and cunning men who tell us things that we shouldn't believe. And oftentimes we're feeding in our own appetites of the flesh. And here's that we, we do that so constantly, the devil doesn't even need to spend any time with us. Can I explain to you real quickly who the devil is after? The devil is after the ones who are sober-minded and alert. And he is sneaking up on them the best way he knows how. And many of us, he doesn't need to spend any time with us because we do our own damage. That's what Paul's saying. He goes, be careful. And so he goes, listen, because there are people that are crafty and cunning, he goes, you, you need to be careful. And he says, therefore, as a result of these type of people that the enemy can use in our lives, do not partner with them. 
For at one time you were in darkness, but now you're in the light of the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. He goes, listen, at the end of the day, you need to know this. You, as a believer in Christ, an expression of God's goodness in the world, need to be careful who it is that you ultimately get into partnerships with. And so real quickly, here's a handful of things that are just real practical in your life. You ought to be careful, ladies, gentlemen, in your dating relationships. You ought to be real careful who it is that you yoke yourself with. But at the same time, do not be fooled by crafty, cunning people who would say, hey, listen, um, listen, girl, uh, you shouldn't date him uh, because um, he's a different skin color than you. And the Bible says that as a white person, you shouldn't um, date a black person. No, it doesn't. That's the most unbiblical, ungodly statement I think I've ever heard. It's oftentimes used by men who don't know their Bible and who are fearful that their precious little blonde-headed daughter would actually marry a black man. Listen, my daughter is free to date any man who loves Jesus well. And if he can care for her, nurture her, protect her in faith, then hey, to God be the glory. What he is saying, though, is hey, um, Brandon, you better guard your daughter um, that that is a man who's wise and above reproach and that would love her as a sister in Christ first more than someone that fulfills his sexual appetite. That's the key. Um, What it's also saying is that as we think about church membership, we need to think about who it is that we yoke ourselves with. Listen, we're going to yoke ourselves here at Stone Point with people who know who Jesus is and who are walking that out. I heard just this last week, um, man, we don't really care for Stone Point that much because y'all have ridiculous membership requirements and y'all want us to actually do something. Um, I'm sorry. I can't find in Scripture why that's a problem. I can't, I can't find, I, what I do find is, is in 2 Corinthians 6, that there is a warning about, but as believers of light, fellowshipping with the darkness. I see a grave concern with people who are claiming to know and follow Jesus who don't do anything for Jesus. And why, the reason that the task of shepherding is so hard for many churches in America is because there's too many wolves that have easily been infiltrated as members. Wolves don't get to be members of the flock of Christ. They're sheep who need a shepherd. Wolves don't want a shepherd, need a shepherd, or desire a shepherd. They want to kill the shepherd, and they want to kill his sheep. And that's why the average lifespan of a pastor in our day and age right now is about a year and a half. And the reason why is because there's mean, conniving, vile people who live under the authority as a prince of the power of the air and a son of disobedience. Hey, you are going to have to go back and listen to this message. There's a lot in it. But, but that's what he's saying. He goes, listen, think through that. Listen, last practical application, that also means as you're thinking through relationships, dating relationships, marriage, yoking yourselves with unbelievers, church membership, you ought to think real quickly, just specifically about, just think business relationships. Do you really want to go into a business partnership with someone who does not know Jesus and ultimately struggles with greed and, and uh, impurity and foolishness? And the answer is probably not. You can, you can work through that, wade through that, but it's a great text. Just think through. Is my business partner the one who we're sharing money with, dreams with, and ultimately um, everything else in life with? Are they on the same pursuit of Jesus as I am? That's a question that Paul says you think through. Think through that. Because we're children of light, we bear fruit, and we are a king of what's right and true. And when you think about truth, it's defined in the Scriptures, and we don't define it ourselves. 
And so all things with life pertaining to godliness all come from God. Real quickly, what is truth? Here it is. There is a triune God exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He lived outside of space and time. And one day he decided he was going to pursue a relationship and create mankind. He entered into space and time. He created everything that we see and know and even the things we don't see or know. Colossians 1. He created them because of his sovereignty and ultimately for his pleasure. It is by him and for him that all things exist. In humanity, he knew that one day we were going to give ourselves over to our own truth, that we're going to do what's right in our own mind. We're going to be deceived, and we're going to define things differently. First, we started with the goodness of God, that God couldn't surely be good and right, but he is. And so when we move on from there, we begin to define other things. We're going to define things about what really is sin and what's not sin, and how far can we go before it actually becomes a problem. We begin to redefine things that he's very clearly said about who we are, about what marriage is, about what life is, about all those things. And when we get to all that, here's the deal. What you need to know is the sovereign, omnipotent God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, ultimately has a dilemma because the people he created no longer desire to know him or follow him. But in his goodness, he sends his son that even in our humanity, we're sinful and we're wretched and we're vile. He goes, I'm going to send a good gift to you. And his name is Jesus. And he'll be everything that you're not. That if you'll trust him, he'll forgive you and he'll make you right before the eyes of God. He'll meet the legal demands and the just punishment that is due to you. And he'll be the imputation of God. He will impute to his righteousness and he'll take your sin. And so live in that. And then discern what is pleasing to the Lord as a result of knowing what's right and true. And here's the deal. Let me just wrap it up with this. Pleasing to the Lord. What is pleasing to the Lord? And he uses this incredible word there, uh, which is the word uh, dokimazo, which literally means um, to test it. And the best I can give you is an example of this ring right here in my pocket, to test it. Um, How do you test it? Um, well, here's the deal. Here's how you test uh, things is that you have to approve them. And the best use of that word in the Greek, uh, dokimazo, which literally is the kind of the testing of metals. Like, how do you know what's real and what's authentic and what's not? And the only way oftentimes you know what's real or not is when you put some, some heat up under it. And so oftentimes we have to go through trials and suffering and, and momentary afflictions in this life for God to kind of refine and purify us. And for many of us, we've been under the heat and we're under the gun. And God's going, listen, I want to do my best work in you. I want to refine you. I want to mold you. I want to shape you. I want to make you. And there's many of us in that point in time, we run. But listen, here's what, when the, the, the heat's turned up, they... they, they cause all the impurities and then they take it and they they just remove the dross and and the impurities and they continue that process of heat and removing impurity heat and removing impurity until you finally get a precious metal that can be made into a uh, to a ring and when you get a ring uh, it's oftentimes something that you have to test and refine and here's the deal the question is is this precious metal that's been refined and does it have real authentic stones or does it not and listen i have no knowledge to test such a thing. I mean, I looked at it this week and I'm like, I saw it laying around. I had a question for my little girl who is six. And I said, hey, Blake, is this your ring or is that one of mama's rings? And she snatched it out of my hand, which told me it was her ring. And she goes, that's my ring. And I go, okay, hey, real, real quick, do you mind if I use that this week? And she's like, oh, no, I prefer to keep it. And I was like, no, I, like, I just want to tell a story in front of the whole church, you know, if you don't mind. And she's like, do you promise you'll give it back? And I'm like, yes. And here's what I know. It's valuable to her. But once I realized that it was hers, I also realized that it's not that 
valuable. I think that's the confusion that we have in our culture in our day and time. God goes, I, I have made you into a precious stone, a commodity. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy people. You are my possession. I love you. I care for you. Now go and be authenticated. Live out what I've done in your life. Be the real deal, even when refined by fire. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would take the glorious hope of this text and this message, and I pray that you would help us to live this out. Lord, it, it is a challenge, but here's the deal. God, we know that even in our challenges, even in our momentary afflictions, even in our desire to pursue what's right in our own eyes, to gravitate to what's natural in our flesh, Lord, you gave us the promise Holy Spirit. According to Ephesians 1, you sealed us for the day of redemption. You have given us all the power and all the knowledge that we need to live for you and to love you. So God, help us to live for you, to love you, to serve you, and to proclaim the goodness of God in our lives. Help us to be the light in the darkness. Help us to be careful what it is that we give ourselves over to. Uh, Lord, help us not to be licentious in our living, going and doing whatever it is that's, that's pleasing to us in the moment and seeking your forgiveness afterwards. God, help us to kill our sin. and Help us to follow you in grace and truth. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.